right. So this lecture is called Plague and the Human Heart, What We Can Learn from the Black Death. And I'm really disappointed that we couldn't have PowerPoint tonight because there were some really great, and by which I mean disturbing, medieval illustrations you've missed out on. But other than that, I think we will be fine. Um, so yeah. So we're often told in these times that we're living in unprecedented times. Have you heard that? <laughs> but in fact, these COVID times, as they are, have become commonly known, as with most, most times, are really not that unprecedented. Humanity has a long history of pandemics and the social turmoil that results. In the Western world, the most famous of these pandemics has got to be the Black Death. So most of us don't think that much about the Black Death, probably, unless we're watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail, maybe. <laughs> I'm not dead yet! <laughs> but the emergence of COVID has caused people to take more interest in the past. As is often said, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Or as my uncle quoted to me this week, those who learn from the past are doomed to watch others repeat it. <laughs> those who do learn from the past watch others repeat it. So we often blame our circumstances, this pandemic included, for creating chaos around us. But much of the chaos actually shows what already existed in some form in society. So COVID has been referred to some as an apocalypse. My friend calls it copocalypse. <laughs> but this doesn't mean the literal end of the world. Rather, it's the translation of the Greek word, apocalypsis, which means unveiling or revelation. So disaster like this reveals what's beneath the surface. The status quo is disrupted and the truth comes out. So with that in mind, I'm going to split this talk into two parts. And first, we will look at how the Black Death revealed the dark side of humanity in the medieval era, and how that finds some parallels in our responses to COVID today. And second, we'll see some shining examples of how people did respond in a Christ-like way during the plague, and how we might do the same today. So before we begin this, just a disclaimer, I am not an historian, and even if I were, historians are always debating facts and details, so I'm sure that I have at least a few things incorrect and probably pronounce things wrong and stuff. So if you know better than me, you can bring it up in the discussion period at the end and just feel silently resentful. Until <laughs> um, so yeah, I wish I had this PowerPoint because we're going to talk about plague symptoms, but uh, I want to start. I want to start by yeah, just sort of setting the scene by talking about the symptoms of the plague. Um, I don't want to horrify you all, but I think it's helpful to understand why people were so terrified of catching this and how it killed so many people. Um, and it does bear saying that there's actually some debate about whether the Black Death was really caused by the bubonic plague, um, but it's still that's still the predominant theory. So I'm just going to go with that. Uh, and the first thing to know is that there are actually three different kinds of plague. Um, and they are all caused by the bacteria Yersinia pestis. All three kinds were active during the Black Death, which accounts for the confusing variety of symptoms and death rates. The first type is bubonic plague. And this is spread primarily through, who knows their history, <laughs> flea bites, right? 
So that's where the bacteria enters the lymphatic system, and then it creates these painful buboes, these big boils, swollen lymph nodes in the groin, the armpits, and or the neck that filled up with pus. Pretty nasty. Um, other symptoms include fever, headaches, chills, and weakness. If it was left untreated, uh, it generally, if, if it does now, it still exists, generally kills people within a week. So here's a poetic description of bubonic plague by a medieval Welsh poet. We see death coming into our midst like black smoke, a plague which cuts off the young, a rootless phantom which has no mercy for fair countenance. Woe is me of the shilling in the armpit. It is seething, terrible, wherever it may come, a head that gives pain and causes a loud cry, a burden carried under the arms, a painful, angry knob, a white lump. It is of the form of an apple, like the head of an onion, a small boil that spares no one. Great is its seething, a, like a burning cinder, a grievous thing of an ashy color. It is an ugly eruption that comes with unseemly haste. They are similar to the seeds of the black peas, Broken fragments of brittle sea coal and crowds precede the end. It is a grievous ornament that breaks out in a rash. They are like a shower of peas, the early ornaments of black death, cinders of the peelings of the cockleweed, a mixed multitude, a black plague like halfpence, like berries. It is a grievous thing that they should be on fair skin. So in this description, you can feel this poet just trying to grapple with language to describe the horror of what he's seeing. A black smoke and a rootless phantom. You can feel the horror that people must have felt at that time. The plague was often depicted as this monster stalking into towns just bent on destruction. So the second type of plague is pneumatic plague, and this is a more rare form. It, it's caused when an advanced bubonic plague reaches the lungs. Um, or when someone catches the plague from somebody who has pneumatic plague already um, when, by spreading droplets, much like COVID. So, and, and a lot of the symptoms are actually similar to COVID. Headaches, fever, weakness, chest pains, and coughs. And this variety, the pneumatic, usually killed more quickly than the bubonic type within a few days. And the last, most uncommon type is septicemic. This gets into the bloodstream and it can cause death within 24 hours. So many people would go to bed and not wake up in the morning and their family would find them dead. It's pretty horrifying. Mm. So whichever the three types you caught, it was not a pleasant way to die. And in the medieval era, medicine was in a very primitive state. I'm glad that Melissa didn't have to read all the medical, uh, medical stuff I read. Um, what doctors did was often just as likely to kill the patient as to help him. So bloodletting was a big one, both as a prevention and as a cure. cure. Uh, drinking mercury and eating arsenic were some of the other cures. Um, and most people believe that the plague was spread through vapors in the air. So this kind of mist that was being blown from the east. And most of these preventive um, efforts attempted to combat the supposed vapors. So having nice smelling things in your house, walking around with a bouquet of flowers, a pocket full of posies. Completely ignoring the rats that were spreading the plague infected. People did, however, discover that the plague was spread 
through contact with victims. And this led to a mass flight from infected areas. Unfortunately, this often served to just spread the plague further abroad. And I'm sure that we can all remember in the spring when we first started hearing more and more about COVID coming closer and closer to where we lived. And when the first cases showed up in your area, I remember when the first case hit us on Vancouver Island and it seemed like we were immune for a long time with the water between us, um, but we weren't. And nobody knew how hard hit their own place was gonna be. We still don't know exactly what's gonna happen. Um, and medicine just, it takes time to catch up with a new illness and people are still waiting for a vaccine. But this anxiety that many of us have felt in the past months is really small compared to the flight, the fear that plague victims would have had in the medieval era who knew almost nothing of science and had little resort other than superstition. Um, one commenter said probably most of what the doctors did never really helped anybody. Um, so imagine knowing that when the plague hit your town, as it was going to do, even if you escaped, probably half of your family was going to die. So people really had good reasons to be afraid of this. Um, and now I'm going to give you a bit of history of the Black Death, um, how it happened. And uh, you can just imagine these gruesome details while I talk about it. Um, so the Black Death was actually one of three plague pandemics. The first plague pandemic began with the Plague of Justinian. It was named after Emperor Justinian because he caught it and survived. Um, started in 541 and it spread through much of the ancient world, killing 25 to 100 million people as it recurred over two centuries. So all of these plagues have recurrences, recurring epidemics, um, but the start date is, is when the big one sort of happened. So the second was the Black Death, which we'll be talking about in the 14th century. Um, and then the third actually occurred in the 17th century. Um, and it spread across the whole world. I didn't even know about this until I started researching. Uh, it particularly ravaged India. And this pandemic caused over 10 million deaths, but it also gave scientists the opportunity to figure out the true causes of the plague. So this means that today, although the plague still does exist and it's endemic in some regions, so it's sucked in there and it's not going away, modern medicine and changes in society keep it from becoming the threat that it once was. So the Black Death is the plague pandemic that seems to live most vividly in our imaginations today. The plague is thought to have reemerged in the steppe region in 1346 and spread along the trade routes. So Europe Europeans were hearing vague rumors of its devastation, but the average person had no contact with Asia and the threat just seemed pretty unreal. Then Mongols attacking an Italian trading post in Crimea caught the plague. They were forced to go up their attack, but before they did, they catapulted dead bodies over the city walls to spread the plague. This was an early example of biological warfare. In the spring, the Italians fled and carried the plague with them. It spread across Europe, devastating the population wherever it went. People who were already living in unsanitary conditions with poor diets, war, and poverty were just primed to succumb. It's really uh, difficult to get accurate figures of how many people died in the Black Death. Um, just like today, it's not always clear if someone died of the pandemic or of another illness. And medieval chroniclers also just like to make stuff up. Um, they don't seem really concerned with accuracy uh, and they usually just scale the number very high. Um, <laughs> Sounds like 
it's just like a lot of people died, basically. <laughs> but uh, however, uh, at least a third of Europe's population died in the Black Death, or even over half. Um, and within months, 60% of For Florence's population was dead. In other places, it was 90%. Um, some got off easier than that. And what's and the percentage of them? Uh, up to 90%. Florence was 60%. Uh, and in general in Europe? Uh, it, between a third and a half. Um, it's probably about 20 million people. Um, and often there just seemed to be little re uh, rhyme or reason. Some, sometimes it was a port town, but other towns it just didn't really make sense why one got hit really hard and another one didn't. And in some cities the dead were just piled in pits, stacked on top of each other. One Italian described it like making lasagna, basically. Some towns didn't even have enough people left to bury the dead. Not only was the death rate catastrophic, the plague also killed much of the livestock. So you hear accounts of sheep and cows in the mm -hmm. fields lying dead. Crops mm -hmm. were left unharvested because no peasants were available. There was a wool shortage in England. Building projects such as cathedrals were just had to be halted because all the artisans were dying off. So today, if you go to Europe, you'll see, you may see some cathedrals that were just hastily finished and never actually built to their original design. Um, so society went all, under all kinds of major upheavals as a result. And then, as I said, there were also um, recurring epidemics of plague between the pandemics, um, including the Great Plague of London, which I'm going to talk about later. Okay, so that's a history, a uh, brief history. And um, now I'm going to talk about some negative responses that people have had in times of plague. And these responses really show the worst of the human heart. So we're going to look at self-protection, hatred towards others, self-blame, and lawlessness. Reacting to a pandemic with fear is really understandable. And I'm sure that all of us have felt fear on some level during COVID, even if it's just being afraid of running out of toilet paper. Fear is, in many ways, a reasonable response. And it can lead us to appropriate cautions that protect ourselves and other people. But when fear takes over as a primary driver, we tend to react rather than thoughtfully respond. So what forms did fear take during the plague pandemic in the Black Death, and how do they parallel fearful reactions to COVID today? So the first is self-protection. Well, pandemics naturally lead people to try and save themselves and those they love. But sometimes this comes at the cost of caring for those who are suffering or more susceptible to illness. During the Black Death, many people fled the city for the countryside, and these were usually the rich people who didn't have to stay in the city and work and could afford accommodation elsewhere. Unfortunately, often the plague spread with them, infecting new areas. But crowded and unhygienic conditions in the city were far more dangerous for those who stayed. So the rich on the whole did suffer less than the poor. And while some places did people did fundraise to relieve the poor, others simply just left them to their fates. So Boccaccio uh, wrote a collection of short stories called the Decameron, um, finished in 1353, and he uses this frame story of a group of nobles who have fled Florence to hole up in this, this mansion um, and self-isolate until the plague is over. And then they all tell stories to each other, and that's the, the, the so it's the frame story. Um, he describes the tendency of the rich to flee the city. So here I'm quoting from him. Some again, the most sound, perhaps, in judgment, as they were also the most harsh in temper, 
affirmed that there was no medicine for the disease superior or equal in efficiency to flight. Following which prescription, a multitude of men and women, negligent of all but themselves, deserted their city, their houses, their estates, their kinsfolk, their goods, and went into voluntary exile or migrated to the country, as if God, in visiting men with this pestilence and requital of their iniquities, would not pursue them with his wrath wherever they might be, but intended the destruction for, of such alone as remained within the circuit of the walls of the city. And even within the city, people abandoned their loved ones. So he says, one man shunned another, kinsfolk held aloof, brother was forsaken by brother, oftentimes husband by wife. Nay, what is more, and scarcely to be believed, fathers and mothers were often found to abandon their own children to their fate, <coughs> untended, unvisited, as if they had been strangers. During this time, the church also came under criticism for selfish behavior. Priests were really on the front lines of the Black Death. The death rate among clergy was particularly high. This is quite well documented, more than uh, other statistics, because they were the ones performing the last rites and trying to bring comfort to people. Um, the priests had no special protection from the plague, which seemed a bit mysterious to people who thought that it was a curse from God. Um, and though many clergy did die in faithful service to their parishioners, there's lots of stories of that, others also fled for their lives or they performed their duties very reluctantly. Um, and this gave rise to greater discontent with the church. Um, some church officials were also profiting off the inheritances of the dead or from saying prayers for the wealthy. So some people criticize them for leaving their flock and going to just say prayers for rich people that make money. So in ancient plagues, um, Actually, they helped the spread of Christianity because Christians were known for taking care of people who weren't even Christians when everyone else was fleeing the city. But unfortunately, um, this, it didn't have the same effect during the Black Death. And um, actually how the church was viewed started to pave the way for rejection of the church in the Reformation. So those of us on Vancouver Island maybe especially feel blessed to be so safe during this pandemic. But this should not stop us from caring for those beyond our shores, and even in our shores. And we have seen that COVID affects poorer countries and communities, as well as being particularly dangerous for the elderly and immunocompromised. So many vulnerable populations has, have suffered disproportionately. And this shows us again that rather than creating completely new injustices, pandemics seem to reveal and heighten injustices that are already existing shows us what we think about people who are vulnerable. And many Christians have reached out with love, but others ignore danger or retreat in unhelpful ways. And I know that I have done both at times in different ways. And I, I wonder what the church will be remem remembered for in this season when people look back on this moment. Will it be a witness of self-sacrifice and love that provides hope to people, or will it be seen as corrupt, self-centered, and judgmental? The second negative reaction is hatred of others. When we are faced with circumstances outside of our control, we very often turn to blaming others. Well, unlike in a war, you don't have an enemy in a pandemic. There's no, there's no one to join forces against. So instead, far too often, people find scapegoats. They find someone to blame. And during the Black Death, various groups from lepers to Arabs to Portuguese pilgrims were blamed for the plague. 
lepers wanted to have uh, some companionship, so they were spreading the plague so people would suffer like they were. It's a likely story. Um, but the largest persecution by far was against the Jews. And Jews were already a hated and persecuted group in Europe. So anti-Semitism had caused them to be progressively cut off from every economic field except money lending. This is a field that the church had forbidden to Christians, so it was open for the Jews. And the Jews were often forced to pay large bribes for their own safety to city officials, and this caused them to have to jack up the interest for their customers, which made them disliked. And this was also compounded by a theology that blamed Jews for Jesus' death, um, people forgetting, of course, that Jesus was Jewish. Um, the Jews were suspected of all kinds of evil and strange plots, from kidnapping Christian children to poisoning meat. So unsurprisingly, when the Black Death came along, they were the easiest group to blame. Under torture, some Jews were eventually made to confess, confess secret plots to poison wells and spread plague. This is what people thought they were doing, poisoning the wells. This led to a massacre of Jews across Europe as a result. They were hanged, they were burned, they were walled up in their houses and left to die. The Pope threatened excommunication for those who were persecuting the Jews, but it continued until the waning of the Black Death. Along with the effects of the Black Death, these massacres virtually destroyed entire Jew Jewish communities in many um, areas of Europe. So uh, one author reflects that the medieval European reacted to the Black Death by seeking to rival the cruelty of nature in the hideousness of his own man-made atrocities. Pretty sad. Unfortunately, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So in modern times, the bubonic plague itself has actually been used as a weapon against enemies. Japanese pilots in World War II are reported to have dropped plague-carrying fleas on areas of China. And during the Cold War, both the Soviet Union and the U.S. developed this aerosol spray that could, um, that could uh, spray the bacteria. So just like during the Black Death, today conspiracy theories abound about how COVID has been created and or spread. Philip Zeigler says that while disasters can have this effect of bringing everyone together, um, fighting something together, it can also cause people to suspect everybody around them of various plots. And often first you have the joining together and then you have the kind of everyone sus suspecting each other. And I think we've seen this in our own time, especially in the early days of COVID, racism against Asians in particular increased. And the West Coast has a high Asian population and a history of anti-Asian sentiment. Many of us heard reports of anti-Asian racism in Vancouver in the spring, but it also happened here too, um, probably still is. And a local pastor here related a story that happened to him in a grocery store in Victoria. He was standing in the checkout line, keeping social distancing, not even putting his stuff on the conveyor belt and the woman in front of him turned, did a double take when she saw that he looked Chinese and then said something like, can you get away from me? I don't want people like you near me. And the grocery store went dead quiet. So racism is not a new thing. I don't think that COVID made her into the kind of person who would make that statement or any of us who um, have things that are in our own hearts. So it just highlights the existing prejudice that is there. And other groups have also been blamed for the spread of COVID. Young people have blamed old, old people have blamed young. Um, 
for being incautious, and different socioeconomic, religious, or political groups have pointed fingers at each other. And I don't mean to say that there are no differences between demographics and how they handle the, these things, but reacting with hatred is not only counterproductive, it is not Christ-like. So Jesus didn't get involved in all the political plots and intrigues of his day. Instead, he stayed focused on his mission of compassionate, sacrificial love extended even to the ones who killed him, who did plot his own death. So I think we need to um, reflect that today. Okay, so the third negative reaction we often see in pandemics is self-blame. There's blaming others and there's blaming ourselves. And the Black Death was widely seen as God's judgment for human sin. The Bishop of Winchester wrote, it is much to be feared that man's sensuality which, propagated by the tendency of the old sin of Adam, from youth inclines all to evil, has not fallen into deeper malice, and justly provoked the divine wrath by a multitude of sins to this chastisement. Some of the penitential acts that the church prescribed, or others took on themselves, were relatively harmless, such as barefoot processions, but other people took a more extreme approach, and probably the worst of these were the flagellants. You guys heard about the flagellants. You, so there's like a milder version in Monty Python where the people are smacking, the monks are smacking themselves with books as they <laughs> walk around. Um, and it is a funny scene, but the reality of the flagellants was a lot more disturbing and gruesome. Um, so yeah, the medieval church already emphasized penitential acts much more than we do now. Um, but during the Black Death, it became a lot more extreme. And people were trying to take the sin on themselves and convince God to turn his wrath away from people and spare them from death. And these, this was really the resort of people who were terrified and didn't know what else to do. Um, and this movement likely began in Germany. Um, the flagellants were also known as the Brethren of the Cross, and they moved throughout Europe from village to village. They had made strict religious vows, foregoing such things as bathing, shaving, changing their clothes, sleeping in a bed, or talking to members of the opposite sex. And they also practiced self-flagellation. So they whipped themselves in public. They gathered all the townspeople, whipped themselves, um, so to turn God's wrath away um, and, and repenting of their sins. And this whipping could be so severe that occasionally people died. It was not just a little slap on the back. Um, and the flagellants drew these crowds of people who were um, probably looking for an outlet of, of pent-up um, feelings. And they really kind of riled people up and it could generate a lot of frenzy. They kind of took over the religious life of the village um, and, and sort of, yeah, took on roles that only the clergy were supposed to have. And in some places they instigated killing the Jews. Um, so they started to gain more and more power and influence and were doing things that only the church was allowed to do. So they started to clash with the church. And in 1349, the Pope uh, said, condemned the Brethren of the Cross, and people began to persecute them instead until the movement just died out. Um, so however strange and gruesome this may seem to us today, to the medieval man, their practices were easier to explain. So Philip Ziegler says, to the more sophisticated, the excesses of the flagellants may have seemed distasteful, to the more prudent, dangerous. But to no one did they seem meaningless or irrelevant that there was a method in their madness was taken for granted even by the least enthusiastic. So, because this is what people believed, that this was, everyone pretty much believed this was divine punishment. And we don't 
tend to go to such extremes today as flagellation. But disasters such as famine, earthquakes, and plague almost always draw speculation about divine punishment. I'm sure that you have heard that in your time. I, I can think of multiple disasters that, you know, whether it be 9-11 or floods or whatever, um, where people have said, this is God's punishment for this thing or that thing. Um, and if you have wondered whether COVID could be ju God's judgment, you aren't alone. <laughs> I have had to think about this question myself. And it's an important question to ask, since we do see God orchestrating disease to punish people in the Old Testament. However, the plagues that we read about in the Old Testament were supernatural in nature, whereas COVID occurs naturally. It didn't come out of nowhere. There, they were also specific punishments on various people or nations for turning away from God. So the Egyptian plagues would be an example, or Miriam's leprosy. And they came before the new covenant in Jesus, which emphasizes the grace and love of God. So Jesus actually gives examples of suffering that have no cor correlation with sin. So about the man born blind, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Everyone's assuming that it must have been his sin that caused this. But Jesus says no. And in another incident, some people bring up Pilate's massacre of Galileans. Jesus replies that these men were no worse sinners than anyone else, and neither were those on whom this tower of Siloam had fallen. Instead, all people equally need to repent. So blaming ourselves or others for incurring natural disaster through sin is a dangerous game. It can heap more suffering on people who are already wounded. Even where human action is to blame for a disaster, as it sometimes is, we should be compassionate towards those who suffer. A tragedy, whether it's caused by humans or by nature, is not an indication of the victim's sin. Such disasters are just part of living in a fallen world. So there is a sin element, but it's not, it's not the victims necessarily. Um, but they also may turn up the volume of our unchristlike actions. So things can come out like racism and exploitation of nature and disregard for the poor. Those things can sometimes get worse because we're going through um, a disaster. And the scientist John Lennox points out that natural disasters can be megaphones that wake us up from our destructive paths. So we would do well to listen. And the final negative reaction that I want to talk about is lawlessness. That was the best word I could think of to describe what I meant. Um, during and after the Black Death, many contemporary writers noted the collapse in public morality. And as people watched their families and neighbors just struck down, seemingly random, they knew that their own survival was unlikely. This caused many to split, spend their remaining days just getting drunk, looting empty houses that people had fled from, um, and so on. Boccaccio writes that these folk maintained that to drink freely to frequent places of public resort and to take their pleasure with song and revel, sparing to satisfy no appetite and to laugh and mock at no event was the sovereign remedy for so great an evil. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This fatalistic attitude has recurred throughout various periods of death and upheaval. When things feel beyond our control, we can be um, tempted to go, say, go to Kelowna and party with Jenny. <laughs> the isolation and other pressures of COVID have um, led a lot of us to disregard precautions and even swing to the other extreme of risk-taking behavior. But the biblical picture is that disaster should cause us to examine ourselves in our society more closely and work toward change, not just go and party. We know that our nervous system reacts to danger in three ways, fight, flight, or freeze. And we see fight in this hatred of others that can be generated. 
flight in self-protection that neglects care of people and freeze in this apathy of lawlessness. So Dr. Bonnie Henry, St. Dr. Bonnie Henry um, has this injunction that's become a provincial slogan basically, be kind, be calm, be safe. And we might pair these two sayings together. So instead of using blame or violence to fight those we fear, we should choose kindness. Instead of fleeing in self-protection, we should calmly work to care for those who need it. And instead of freezing in apathy, we should continue to actively pursue love of God and neighbor. So what does this kind of positive behavior look like in action? Now that we have heard some depressing cautionary tales from the past, I want to look at two stories of inspiration that come from the plague as well. So the first is the plague village of Iam, Iam, E-Y-A-M. I hope that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> so this story is a story of self-sacrifice and it's of calm that had cost one village almost everything. And it takes place in an English resurgence of the plague in 1665. So since the Black Death, the plague had remained lurking in European cities, causing occasional outbreaks. London was hard hit by this particular epidemic, which historians estimate killed about 100,000 people in 18 months, which was a quarter of the city's population. Once again, doctors, clergy, and political leaders, including the king, hightailed it and let the rest of the people suffer. In the small Derbyshire village of Eam in September 1665, a tailor's assistant, George Vickers, unwrapped a wet bale of cloth, and he hung it up by the fire to dry. Inside the cloth, there were plague-carrying fleas. So Vickers became Eam's first plague victim. Others quickly fell ill and died. By December, 42 villagers were dead. The frightened and grieving survivors were ready to flee Iam for safety, but the newly appointed rec rector, William Montpesson, knew that if they did so, the plague would spread to the surrounding villages that had so far been spared because they were not close to London. So he made a remarkable decision. He would convince the villagers to stay in Iam and let the plague run its course. Now, while one man's self-sacrifice might be unusual, a whole village joining him seemed impossible. In addition, the villagers disliked Montpesson. He had come to replace the previous rector, Thomas Stanley, who had been removed from his post for refusing to use the Book of Common Prayer in his services. And like Stanley, most of the other villagers were Puritans who had supported Cromwell, and they didn't take kindly to someone with different religious and political views replacing their rector. Montpesson knew that the villagers were unlikely to support him in the decision to stay. So he reached out to Stanley, who was still living on the outskirts of Iam. Together they formed a plan. The village would be cut off from the outside while the plague lasted. A nearby Earl agreed to supply them with food if they agreed to remain quarantined. While many of the villagers still had misgivings and were reluctant, but they decided it was the right thing to do, and they were agreeing to almost certain death. The plague did destroy most of the village. Elizabeth Hancock had to bury her own husband and six children, who had died within eight days of each other. Montpesson lost his wife, who had cared for many of the dying. Some families were completely wiped out. Yam had been home to between 350 and 800 people before the plague and lost 260 people in about a year. Montpesson believed that he would die, but in fact, he was spared. The plague epidemic had revealed in Montpesson and many of his parishioners a conviction that caused them to stay 
rather than to flee. They weren't naive about their likelihood of survival. They didn't just say, oh, God will protect us. While they must have struggled with the terror of a painful death, they believed that death was not the end. They had a faith that there was more than that. And the villagers of Iam acted out Jesus' sacrificial love and likely spared thousands from death around them. So this story should cause us to reflect on our own actions in this time. It's hard to imagine a better illustration of be kind, be calm, be safe than this village, or have loved your neighbor as yourself. Are we more concerned about protecting our rights, our families, or our finances than we are about caring for those around us? Or are we willing to make difficult sacrifices when required? We're unlikely to ever face the situation of Iam, but we can still show care that puts others first while those around us react with self-protective anxiety. So the other story I want to share is of Julian of Norwich. It also comes from England, Norwich. Um, and during the medieval era, era, there was this female mystic living in Norwich, Julian, as an anchoress. Who knows what an anchoress is? Anybody? Well, Brett knows. Keener. <laughs> um, so anchorites and anchoresses were recluses who were committed to prayer. And they lived in small cells off the side of a church. I had a really great photo of a, a little anchoress in, with a bishop or someone sealing her up in there. Often the doorway was sealed and a prayer for the dead was said over them. They were not killed, but they just remained in there for the rest of their lives. And they were usually left with one window looking into the church so that they could um, hear services and receive mass and then one window looking out on the world. And that was where people would come to them and receive spiritual counsel. And this may seem like a really extreme <laughs> way to live your life, uh, which it is, but one of the benefits of the Anchorite life was that in, it was in effect a form of self-isolation. So it was hard to catch the plague when you were holed up in one of the in one room with maybe a cat for company. Um, and Julian probably took her name from the church where she was enclosed. So really little is known about her life before she became an anchoress. However, she gives some autobiographical details in her book, A Revelation of Love. This is actually the earliest surviving book written in English by a woman. Pretty cool. And in the book, a young Julian explains how she prayed that God would give her three things. The first is a vision of Jesus's passion so that she could love him more deeply. She wanted to empathize with his sufferings. And as my friend said, who does that? The second is sickness in her youth that would be so severe she would think that she was dying so that after her recovery, she would live a life that was more devoted to God. And the third is three wounds of contrition compassion and longing for God. So instead of actual stigmata that some uh, mystics were said to receive, it was, it was an internal thing. Julian said she forgot about the first two prayers, but she became deathly ill when she was 30 years old. And she received her last rites, expecting that she was going to be dead by morning. As the priest held the crucifix before her face and told her to look at it, she had 16 visions or showings of Jesus. And these, this included Jesus' suffering on the cross, which she had prayed for. She did recover from her illness, and she spent many years editing and reflecting on her visions. Her text was preserved by monks and nuns and not published until 1670. So Julian would have been six years old when the Black Death arrived in Norwich. And at the time, Norwich was probably second only to London in size and importance. It was particularly hard hit by the plague one of probably three or four of the top, the worst hit in England. And Julian would have witnessed the death of over half of her city. 
outbreaks of the plague would recur throughout her lifetime. Though we don't know for certain, some scholars believe that she was actually married and had children before the plague which wiped them out, or a recurrence of the plague. And during her lifetime, society was disturbed by more than plague. At that time, popes were living in Avignon, France, instead of Rome, and this was causing a lot of political division. The Hundred Years' War also created ongoing conflict between France and England, and the Black Death created huge economic upheaval. So English peasants staged a major revolt in 1381, seeking lower taxes and the abolition of the feudal system. So we had riots, pandemic, economic chaos, and polarized politics. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> but what, despite what felt to many like the end of the world, Julian's faith remained secure. It may seem weird that visions of Jesus being tortured and killed would br bring Julian such a peace of soul. But at the sight of Jesus' suffering, her own suffering became less as she empathized with him. She was also convinced more deeply of his love for humanity and his willingness to suffer so much for us. And not all of her visions were ones of suffering either. Of what is probably her most famous vision, Julian recounts, in the same time, our Lord showed to me a ghostly, which means spiritual, sight of his homely loving. I saw that he is to us everything that is good and comfortable for us. He is our clothing that for love wraps us, embraces us, and all becloses us for tender love that he may never leave us, being to us all thing that is good as to my understanding. Also in this, he showed a little thing the quantity of a hazelnut in the palm of my hand, and it was as round as a ball. I looked thereupon with the eye of my understanding, and I thought, what may this be? And it was generally answered thus, it is all that is made. I marveled how it might last, for I thought it might have suddenly have fallen to naught for littleness. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so all things have their being by the love of God. In this little thing, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second, that God loves it. The third, that God keeps it. The world must have indeed seemed fragile in Julian's time, much as it does today. Her confidence in God as maker, lover, and keeper of all things has become a reassurance to many who have read her words. Julian is also particularly known for her vision of God assuring her that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Julian's lifetime was marked by intense societal and personal suffering. When she said, all shall be well, she didn't mean that nobody was going to suffer and die, that economics would suddenly improve, or that peasants would be treated like kings. Her conviction of God's protection encompassed more than her own historical moment, and more than this life. Expanding the meaning of all shall be well, Julian makes two points. The first is that God sees and remembers all that happens, both big and small. Secondly, she says, another understanding is this, that there be evil deeds done in our sight and so great harm taken that it seems to us that it were impossible that it should ever come to a good end. And upon this, we look sorrowing and mourning. Therefore, so that we cannot rest us in the blissful beholding of God, as we should do. And the cause of this is that the use of our reason is now so blind, so low and so simple, 
that we cannot know the high marvelous wisdom, the might and the goodness of the blissful trinity. And thus means he where he says, you shall see for yourself that all manner of things shall be well. As if he said, pay heed now, faithfully and trustingly, and at the last end you shall truly see it in fullness and joy. We can only imagine all that came to Julian's mind when she thought of evil and harm that seemed impossible to heal. Her comfort was not one of easy answers or a lack of life experience. Instead, it was anchored in a God who went through suffering for us and had the power to make all well at last. Julian stressed that we shouldn't expect to have the answers for our current suffering, but rather to know that the larger answer is in God's redemption. So Julian's vision is really that of Shalom, a restored world in which peace is lasting and complete. The safest place is not escape from illness, but held in the hands of God. While I was researching for this lecture, I started to have some nightmares influenced by the darkness of the plague. And my imagination just was spinning with this, the terror and the disgust that people must have felt in the time and their helplessness to escape. When I finally started reading Jillian again, I, it was just like a breath of fresh air to hear her reflections on God's love. And as I researched her, I found that she's actually become very popular again because of her relevance to today. And it's, it's amazing to me that she could have had that deep conviction of God's care despite seeing just massive destruction around her like we can't even imagine today. The Black Death had a lot of terrible effects, some of which we've discussed earlier but it also had a few good ones. One was that it caused many people to pursue faith in a new way. Yeah, Christianity was really just part and parcel of, of the culture in Europe at that time, so maybe as sort of like the South in America today, I don't know. <laughs> um, much, much more so, much, much more so. Um, but the Black Death revealed what kind of faith people actually had. And for some, it was only this cultural expectation. Um, once society came apart at the seams, so did their Christian practice. But others like Julian turned inward to a more contemplative faith, a personal connection with Jesus. They saw the fragility of their lives and the emptiness of purely material things. Mysticism flourished and the church, which many viewed as corrupted, began to lose its traction as the sole guardian of Christianity. The seeds of the Reformation had been sown. Zeigler writes, the terrors of the Black Death drove man to seek a more intense, a more personal relationship with the God who thus scourged him. Interesting. It led him out of the formal paths of establishment religion. Europeans in the second half of the 14th century were enduring a crisis of faith. Assumptions which had been taken for granted for centuries were now in question. The very framework of men's reasoning seemed to be breaking up. And although the Black Death was far from being the only cause, the anguish and disruption which it had inflicted made the greatest single contribution to the disintegration of an age. So people note both this renewal of faith as well as the kind of collapse in morality. Both things were happening at the same time. And for us, it's too early to predict the long-term effects of the current pandemic on faith. As we have seen, such a crisis doesn't automatically result in spiritual renewal. It can have negative effects too. And many Christians, myself included, have struggled in this period of isolation, cut off from church community in many ways. Mental illness, domestic abuse, and financial insecurity are just a few of the increased challenges that people face right now. I've already been hearing stories of faith deconstruction increasing as a result. But at the same time, 
I've seen encouraging glimpses of both churches and individuals who recognize their need for a deeper connection with Christ, not just a cultural vestige of Christianity. So remember COVID being an apocalypse. Remember that pandemics can have this role of revealing the truth. What is this pandemic revealing in our hearts, our societies, and our relationships? Whether it's systemic injustice or our own apathy, hatred, and fear, the brokenness of a fallen world is evident all around us. But at the same time, the glory of being human is apparent too in acts of kindness and self-sacrifice, small and large. And at the heart of it all, our level of trust in God's goodness is being exposed. So C.S. Lewis, in A Grief Observed, writes of his own personal tragedy, the loss of his wife Joy to cancer. Your bid for God or no God, for a good God or the cosmic sadist, for eternal life or non-entity, will not be serious if nothing much is staked on it. And you will never discover how serious it was until the stakes are raised horribly high, until you find out that you are playing not for counters or for sixpences, but for every penny that you have in the world. Nothing less will shake a man, or at any rate, a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his sense. During the plagues, the stakes were raised horribly high. And many are finding the same thing today. <laughs> we Protestants, especially in North America, I think don't tend to have a very good theology of suffering. We often just want to skip over the crucifixion and get straight to Easter morning. But right now we're in Saturday period. Much has died and we are not sure what will come. Suffering around the world is greater than I've known it to be in my own lifetime, which is not <laughs> admittedly too long. Um, but there are no easy answers as to why so many hard things are happening or what their outcome is going to be. We shouldn't give people easy answers because we don't have them. But as we pray for relief, we can take comfort in a God who has suffered with us and for us, sees and remembers all the injustice and harm and will one day make all things well. So the biblical book of Lamentations, which I've been reading through, mourns the captivity of the Israelites and the destruction of Jerusalem in language that sounds very similar to people who must have been going through the Black Death or even today. And I can imagine Christians reading these words throughout the various recurrences of plague. Um, and they seem appropriate in this season of desolation, and I'm going to read them to end this lecture. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. All right. So that's the end. And now is the time to ask questions. I have a question. Great. I have lots of questions. <laughs> Um, 
Yeah, one is that, I, first of all, I really appreciate just how you laid it out, the historical, and just um, helping us understand that this moment is not something that hasn't happened before, even though it hasn't happened to us. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I mean, it almost is encouraging that coronavirus seems a lot less bad now after your talk <laughs> about hearing the Black Death and uh, the suddenness of death. and. Yes, it is global, but um, but then it, it was global in a sense, and it happened so quickly and under with without understanding. We have a lot of understanding. We have a lot of administration. Uh, I do think uh, that the church and the period of enlightenment has created a network mm-hmm. where we have good communication and science and all these things that have really helped us through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you for giving us that. One thing I was just wondering, I don't know if it's in your research, it wasn't something that you said directly, so it may not be something that you can answer. But my understanding is that the Black black Death shifted society, you did talk about major social change, but it shifted society away from feudalism Mm -hmm. towards something more that's more what we would consider modern economy. Uh, Private land owning and uh, entrepreneurship and borrowing and lending and this kind of stuff in a a much more widespread way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just wondering, one, is that true? Did you see other major social change, not just in the church, not just Mm -hmm. for faith, but also just economically, socially, Mm -hmm. sociologically? Uh, And do you see that happening now? Do you, can you, what's your kind of guess? What's, what could be happening now? So yes, it was a, a major contributing factor, but it was not the only factor. So the feudal system was already starting to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically like with all of these other things, um, the pandemic just kind of sped it up. So uh, because a lot of the peasants died off, mm-hmm. um, there were like not enough laborers anymore. And so wages increased. And, and so like under the feudal system, they just had to work the land and then they had their, their place to live, mm-hmm. um, but they had to do it. They couldn't just leave and go um, work mm. somewhere else that they chose, but a lot of people just left <laughs> after the plague because they could go and get money more somewhere else where, mm. and the lords were often so busy trying to keep up with managing their own place and all that was going on that they didn't really bother to persecute them or you know, go after them. Um, so that did really start to shift things a lot more, uh, and I think that when the Peasants' Revolt came about England too, people were um, less content to just kind of do, <laughs> do what they were told. Um, but yeah, it was, so it was maybe even like the major factor, but it wasn't the only factor that was uh, there. So, so yeah, I think it sped up a lot of things that were already changing. Um, yeah, and then like some things I, I mentioned, like sort of the decline in public morality and stuff like that. Um, apparently that often, people often kind of comment on that after mm. a pandemic. Um, and, and yeah, so I think, um, there were, that that was like the major one the shift from the feudal system and then of course like the eventually the reformation um and and like i talked about like the lack of uh trust for the church um and just seeing th- that people saw this corruption because the church was really kind of running <laughs> the show in a lot of ways um so that would be a pretty major um upheaval and so yeah i'd say those were probably the two main ones is the change mm-hmm. in the feudal system and then mm-hmm. the eventual eventually oh, leaving no. the church rejecting mm-hmm. the church um but then of course just like yeah, certain, just, you know, certain kind of livelihoods being wiped out too, and the artisans, like, all, a lot of them dying off, and because it wasn't easy to just get new artisans to do this stuff, 
Um, that changed a lot of trades and stuff too. So yeah, there were a lot of things that did create economic upheaval, but some people also commented how amazing it was that they did keep just going too in a lot of places mm. and um, the resilience that there actually was there. So It almost seems like the breakdown of that society was the birth of the things that we enjoy now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I wouldn't want to go back to the feudal system. Yeah. Uh, and it also, you said, primed, primed the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there's been a lot of good things since mm -hmm. yeah. then. Yeah, and one thing also, uh, this guy Philip Zeigler comments on just that, and I think I mentioned this uh, to you before, but that the land was really being depleted because people were like farming over and over their same little patch of land, and uh, so the crops were getting worse, and people were like, you know, suffering was like overpopulated, and so the black plague, the black death, did kind of like stop that, <laughs> basically <laughs> give the land a rest, much like it has had under COVID. Um, so that that could be like another thing too, um, yeah. And and then with the the Great Plague in London, that actually kind of led to a flourishing of the arts, for example. After that, um, and and like the the fire of London happened shortly after that, and everything was burnt down. The plague kind of ended just before that, and then they had to rebuild everything, and it was much better. And they made it like made the city so that the plague would not like mm. break out again, and um, and, and with better sanitation and stuff, it led to like more of a community feeling. So, there are some good <laughs> things that happen, um, and but yeah, but also a lot of destruction too. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the, I don't think we would wish to get the black death for those things to happen. But yeah, as far as today, I think it's it's early to say. You know, like that's that's the hard thing. It's so early to say, and I think we often want to like say, well, this is what's going to happen, and I think. You know, even in the church, we like, and I've said this, and other people have talked about it. Like, oh, this is going to be revival, blah blah. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. <laughs> like, it's hard to say exactly um, what will happen. But I, I mean, personally, I think as far in in that way, I imagine that we will see both things, just like they saw in the Black Death. We will see people who are like, eh, whatever, uh, and other people who who see, okay, I recognize my own mortality and the insecurity of this world and it causes them to go deeper. So again, I think it's revealing what's already there. Um, I mean, I think like all the, the, the riots and the movements around anti-racism and stuff, I think that has some link to um, the pandemic as well. And so that's a major shift in society that we're seeing now um, that I again would say it's like having this revelation, this revelatory effect. Uh, so I'm sure that that will change. I hope that there will be some positive changes from that. Um, but I don't know what they will look like long term, uh, and I'm sure the economy is going to be very affected <laughs> in lots of ways. Um, whether it's more people working from home, recession, whatever. Like this, I don't know. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts about that. Um, <laughs> we can all make our predictions. I'll write them down and see what comes true. Ten years from now. <laughs> Julia, um, I found your the symptoms sort of helpful to remember what what they all went through. And lawlessness and the hatred and anger struck me in particular because I find that pretty disturbing nowadays and, mm -hmm. and I think with the divisiveness of the American political situation with the divisiveness of COVID is just really and how kind of certain personalities and feelings in one area sort of go along with certain views mm -hmm. on 
politics and you know mask wearing or whatever it is right. it seems to be quite right. divided um, and the way you know our country might be dealing with it compared to the way another country might be dealing with it but not mentioning any other countries names <laughs> yeah but my yeah my mom even was saying the other day how like best friend since one of her best friends since childhood like hung up the phone the other day because they were like talking about the virus and then they were talking about you know Trump and mm -hmm. like they shouldn't have been talking about pretty much any of these things because <laughs> they don't have the same views on them mm -hmm. but this woman was just like if you ever mention this again like you know I don't want to talk to you and like just hung up and my mom was just like oh like you know normally she just can agree to disagree mm -hmm. and Yeah, it was just, it felt very violent to her, even though they're both believers. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't know what will happen, so. Mm -hmm. In their friendship, you mean? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Maybe society itself, too. You know? mm -hmm. like before they were able to keep together in their faith and sisterhood or whatever, and now it's like such a huge deal. Mm -hmm. And people are so passionate about it and against each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Julia, just commenting that it seems like there's yeah, it has really created a lot more sort of violence in the way we interact with each other, whether verbally or otherwise. And I think, I think we are saying that, and and just like, just like no black death, kind of more regionalism, even you know, like this is how our province is doing it, and your province not doing that, and America's yeah. doing this, and Canada's doing this, and mm -hmm. like these people are to blame, you know. So I think. I think that's like a, a natural fear response in some ways and, and so like so many of these are natural responses that we will like look for scapegoats and like think about conspiracies and it's not you know there could be <laughs> there could be certain like things going on I'm sure there are things going on under the surface but just we have to be careful not to become consumed with those things and I think especially in our relationships with people that you know are are close to us and um, that we need we do need each other <laughs> we need to have support in these times and be supportive to each other and so um yeah to just to let like division sink in we have nothing to fear but fear itself <laughs> you know like that is that is it's not that there's nothing to fear there is there are real reasons to fear too but um i think it can really sidetrack us from what it looks like to live faithfully in this time to be consumed with that and then lashing out you know and i think I mean, I've experienced that too, you know, in my own personal life, so things that are already feel like pressures and things I'm anxious about is it just like the generalized atmosphere of anxiety and sadness and uncertainty and all of this stuff. Like, I, I start to absorb that and it makes those things even feel, you know, even more unstable. So um, I don't want, <laughs> I don't think anyone should feel bad or ashamed if they experience that because I think that's very natural. Um, and... I think, yeah, we just have to remember to go back to that place of finding security in God, not in external events, whether it's like a certain person being elected or not elected or um, exactly how the pandemic is dealt with in our own area or all of these things, like, that can't be our ultimate security. Um, and so I think we'll all have tons of anxiety or <laughs> fights with our friends and stuff, but just... I don't know. It's been it's been so helpful for me to reflect on Julian for that reason, you know, um, just that there is a peace for us that should transcend those things at some level.
even when we have our moments of being swamped. Oh, I think the one constant that's okay. It's okay, go ahead. Oh, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> the one constant that we can hold on to is Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, his steadfastness and everything, the crazy upheavals and everything. The thing that we can hold on to is him and his death on the cross and mm -hmm. what he's done for us in our salvation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not like we live our lives here and everything that goes on just happens, right? Whether it be good or bad or whatever. But in the end, when we pass away, we get to go and be with him and that's mm -hmm. that's our constant. Mm -hmm. It's the assurance of our salvation mm -hmm. and our eternity with him. Yeah. And that's that's really helpful, I think. So yeah, the assurance of our of our salvation and also like the fact that we are part of this larger story, like yeah. we're a moment in history. But history is not all about us. God's like God sees us and we are significant and our lives are significant in his story, but also the story is not about yeah. us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and I think so like Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus yes. does have that power of life and death and it's not the final word for us. Yeah, like in Hebrews where it says that we have a great high priest who mm -hmm. understands us you know, and, and talks to God mm -hmm. on our behalf. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we don't have a God who doesn't understand where we're coming from or where we're going through. Right. Right. You know, that we have a compassionate Savior. Yeah, and Jesus was in agony in the garden too you know it wasn't yeah. like he was just like we have this yeah. amazing cheer cheerful heat of sufferings goes with the lion clark in this hymn that we sometimes sing and i'm always like i don't oh, know about that because <laughs> it's like i don't think that he was very cheerful at that moment so uh so yeah like mm -hmm. it's it's understandable to feel that you know that that suffering is real anxiety is real yeah. um but it was like the joy set before him you know that yeah. that caused him um to go to the cross. Yeah. Joshua? Yeah. Um, I was thinking, because you, you, there was a portion of your talk where you started talking about the superstitions and the flagellations and mm -hmm. the and the bloodletting, and it sent my mind down a certain rabbit trail um, towards an anecdote of uh, one of the meetings that um, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton had at Monticello um, in one of their backroom dealings and uh, the story goes while they're having a a, a conversation um, uh, Thomas Jefferson being a, a devotee of the Enlightenment had on his wall a painting of John Locke mm. and a painting of Isaac Newton mm. the great political theorist and the great scientist um, and Alexander Hamilton, though given a fantastic musical, I view as being someone, so, something of a bastard of history. I, I'm not a Hamiltonian. Um, he, he, he looks up at the wall and, and he says, well, who are those guys? And he, and, you know, Thomas Jefferson, taken aback a little bit, says, well, you know, this is Isaac Newton and, and Thomas Je or John Locke. These are the greatest men who have ever lived. And Alexander Hamilton says the greatest man who ever lived was Julius Caesar. Um, but we'll, we'll, to segue back to the... Um, <laughs> the point? This is a trial by fire for the Enlightenment. I, 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 this is, mm. That's what this is, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got you've got the folks who will who 
say, well, okay, let's 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 do this political liberalism thing. Let's do this reason thing and science thing. And then there is the people who will say, well, yeah, but human beings have all of these fears and insecurities, and and instead of like trying to say don't do that, mm. let's use that to to you know as Julius Caesar did to for political gain. Mm-hmm. And I and I and it's it's I feel like this is the sort of thing that a couple of nerds should be able to solve in an <laughs> afternoon, and or you know or over a course of afternoons. And yet this, it's the, the, the human nature that we have, this sort of fearfulness, this will to power, this all of this sort of collides to say, oh, Bill Gates wants to create a, a vaccine to try and get this solved as an engineering problem over a couple of clinical trials. And it's like, well, no, no, let's get, let's get that sort of Julius Caesar thought, well, that's, he's evil and this is a plot and this is a conspiracy and he's a Jew poisoning the well. And I, I, it's, as someone who looks at the Enlightenment from a sort of (laughs) doughy-eyed, sentimental way. And then romantic. You look uh, at that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Romantic. The, the, it's always just, it's disheartening to see the flagellation and bloodletting Mm -hmm. be the default of so many people. That's all. That's just a comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Josh, Josh was just saying that. Yeah. Um, the people have responded in an, a not very logical fashion <laughs> in this era, um, and often kind of more with mass hysteria um, to the pandemic. I think. I think it's interesting. Um, like just thinking about the Black Death as sort of ushering in this end of an era. I don't know if that's exactly what's gonna happen with COVID. But it makes me think about like, is there an era in some ways that is going to end? And what might the needed correctives be? Like when a new era is ushered in, <laughs> there's usually something bad that comes with it, but often there's also new like correctives that we need. So even with the enlightenment, well, romanticism was like somewhat of a corrective to, to it too. So I think and then it had its own excesses. <laughs> so we have this tendency to go back and forth and like that. That So yeah, I, I would be, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, in times of, of heightened fear, we do act out of like the, you know, animal instincts kind of often. But then also at the same time, we have seen people do incredibly beautiful things um, in this time too, that I have been like very loving and self-sacrificial and don't sort of seem reasonable or whatever. So. Um, so I do see that as well, and it's easy to forget about that when we're constantly swamped with the media and the, like, you know, fear mongering. And I think, I think, yeah, like again, like I said, we just have to resolve to not <laughs> give into like that pitting everyone against each other. Um, what I think that media really doesn't help it, um, but people have their own ways of being swept up in fear too, and um, in the Black Death. So, so yeah, I. I guess I wonder, I think it's important to think about like, okay, we see all, all the things that people are doing that are crazy and wrong too, which is definitely happening, but also like, what is it revealing that our society needs to change too? Um, so I think, yeah, I think, I, I hope that we will see that happen and people will see it as a sort of wake up call <laughs> um, for that. and that people will not just seek to sort of use fear, but also like 
pay attention to you know, to what's being revealed. Well, and I think it's also helpful to have a healthy skepticism of not, yeah. I'm not, not science, like science in a way, but also that there is like money involved. And sure. so, yeah, I don't want to go in with conspiracy theorists, but there, it is hard when you don't feel like you have much power yeah. and you don't feel like you know what's going on and you just have to trust these communities all over the world. But there are people that do have their, like, just money at stake or their, you know, like I think of how our country is just spending, 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 and it's like, feels like we're very powerless. Like this, a lot of, a lot of things don't seem like a good idea. Like mm -hmm. there's people that don't want to go back to work now mm -hmm. um, because they're, <laughs> because they've gotten <laughs> money. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like it's a bit beyond the likes of me to understand mm -hmm. all that's going on. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that is, yeah, I, I like that point, Julie, is just saying that we, that there is some cause to have caution. Um, and I think we do need to be wise about that too. And I think, like, yeah, if we had two nerds just like cooking up something and then telling everyone to adopt it, like, I mean, that could have its own dangers too, and I think, I think, if, you know, some people feel like, oh, scientists should just like run, you know, run the world because they're the most logical and rational people. But that's also part of being human is having emotions and having, and and that's like often too where some of the good and beautiful things can come out. Um, and and spoken like a true artist. <laughs> exactly. I don't want scientists to run the world, but I don't want artists to run the world either because that would be a, a gong show. So I'll, I think I'll do it. you can do it. Generally, <laughs> I do want Jenna Lee to run the world. Though. I vote for Jenna Lee. Um, but yeah, so I so I think that like we all have our ideas of many of us have our ideas of the ways that things should be done, but we do need different kinds of people weighing in on this, and it's like a process. Um, and there, there is reason. There, there is reason to be, you know, cautious and, in times even suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Comment, uh, comment from somebody in response to Josh. Uh, to tie Josh's enlightenment lament to Liz's thesis on the pandemic as revelatory, there has always been a distrust between church and science, and the anti-science sentiment, postmodernistic choosing of what science to believe, has been building for years. But when a pandemic comes along that asks for a scientific response, those cracks and fissures mm -hmm. and divisions in whether or not science is trustworthy are revealed. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and what science to trust? Who's science? Who has the facts? You know, and all that stuff gets politicized and weaponized, you know, which I think, again, we're just seeing that anything that comes up is just kind of used as a tool against each other, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, this, this podcast I'm always listening to, this cultural moment, just talks about like uh, how our maybe our biggest witness as Christians in this time is to be a non-anxious presence in the world. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that that's yeah, I'm trying to take that to heart and mm -hmm. and like not again not shame myself for when I do feel anxiety, but also um, just not to get caught up in all. Of of these things which are temporary really you know i would add that um you know i think christians and you know people of good uh sentiment toward the common good mm -hmm. i think that they should 
be a non-anxious presence at the same time of not um, of showing care of mm -hmm. trying to um, uh, deal with people's of not necessarily a weaker conscience but uh, showing a, a humility and a submissiveness mm -hmm. to you know to masks if needed to to social distancing if needed mm -hmm. to to not kind of flaunt so mm -hmm. to yeah. not to be non-anxious and yeah, respectful. and respectful. Right. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and I think being non-anxious doesn't just mean oh, I do whatever I want. It's like it's the inner heart, you know, it's the heart attitude. That's like one that is of trust rather than of panic <laughs> or blame or whatever. Yeah. Brett, thank you, Liz. Uh, excellent lecture. Um, I liked how you uh, were ambivalent. I thought. Am I correct? I don't on, know. On what? <laughs> in terms of God's judgment on sin, hmm. um, obviously there's the extreme, you know, punishment and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, as John Lennox says, we can learn from judgment, and it was mm -hmm. a very interesting uh, learn from disasters. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, the plagues in the Old Testament are clearly punishment for sin. Mm -hmm. The exile is also punishment mm -hmm. for sin. Sure. But yet the Israelites learned from that and it was necessary to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, when Jesus says, you know, were the people in Siloam worse than you? Right. No. But unless you also likewise, you know, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Right. So in a sense, it's kind of a warning. Yeah. And, and, and I just wonder whether in our society, for instance, after 9-11, you know, people reacted with the scapegoats. Right. It was all, you know, but, but no one kind of asked the question, you know, is God saying us, saying something to us yeah. through this experience? Uh, you, you know, and the example of kind of the disaster was great, but it was kind of limited. Right. Um, you know, and, and other things we should be learning, you know, for, 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 for you know, the way we live, our, our ecology, our ecological responses and so on. You know, anything more to kind of say on that? Yeah, I think that's really helpful, and I think that we do tend to sort of get caught up in I when I know exactly why this is happening, like why is God doing this particular thing, instead of, so again, that goes back to the apocalypse, ap apocalypsis kind of thing, that like what is God revealing to us that does need to change, whether in my own heart or in my society or in the world at large, um, but I think it kind of needs to go probably go in that order too, you know, that yeah, because it's so, it's yeah, yeah, like to to look at ourselves and to say, because I know like I probably most of us have experienced in some way like these certain things coming up in us that surprise us during you know isolation and um, and being like I didn't know that was there and that was gonna get so bad or whatever you know, uh, so I think yeah, I mean, I think. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a punishment, but I think that it can be that like any suffering and pain, it can be used to bring us to repentance or to or we can harden our hearts <laughs> against it and say and you know whatever blame others or get more set in our ways or um, break into people's houses and loot them while they're off in their <laughs> country houses. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Question from. Mr. Snell. Oh, yes, Tom. Professor Snell. Uh, suggestions for practical things 
that we, the church, can do. Anything you know of in Victoria, should we be willing to risk our own safety and comfort in Victoria to help? Mm. Or wherever we might live? I mean, I'd love to hear from the crowd on this one. I think one, one thing that the crowd, I don't know why I can say that. <laughs> um, the group, the small group. Um, I, think, I think one thing that they're saying is that, yeah, like, uh, there is, like, having distance is, is a good precaution. So, like... Um, you're talking about your dad like yeah exactly <laughs> dad you can stay where you are everyone else um, but uh yeah like we we do need there is a there is a certain level of self-protection that not only protects ourselves but protects other people too um so that is that can be part of the, the uh, you know faithful response is to be cautious um but yeah there's lot i mean there's lots of things i've heard that you know people are doing whether it's reaching out to people who are homeless right now um yeah I would like to hear I'd like to hear from you know other people about anything they know locally that's that's going on um or in their own place if they're not um but the ways that they've seen people construct you know constructively respond I, I remember I remember seeing a lot of stuff during the shutdown with like neighborhood things that people putting up signs saying like if anyone needs groceries delivered or um and and yeah things on like my church forum about people offering to help each other or just even neighbors putting out like a little <laughs> painted rocks or encouragements and stuff like that so just there's some simple things like that but um but yeah does anyone else have any sort of thoughts what um just one of the things that has come up um, a little bit in my profession for sure but also just with an experience that i've been working with um is that those who are already quite vulnerable mm -hmm. um are even more so and i know that um, across Canada, it's definitely played out in terms of um, things like child abuse, mm -hmm. where yeah. they already are the most vulnerable, and now they're not in schools yeah. or in or being seen by other people in other organizations. Right. They're within an environment that they're not able to have. Not only the, the family's not able to have the support, but the child's not able to be seen or recognize what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly, that's been a, a call out from pediatricians that people yeah. need to be aware of what's happening in their neighborhood and mm -hmm. be watching for things that they might not usually think to watch for because it would be picked up somewhere else. Right. Um, and I think that's the same as a, also a refugee family that I'm working with right now. That yeah. Again, the services that might have been there or, or the supports that might have been there for families that are very new to Canada, um, it's made it that much more difficult. We find it difficult that we live here and we're trying mm -hmm. to navigate closed doors to banks and right. you know all these things and and they don't know how to navigate around that right. not having the language or familiarity with the community so just having an awareness in your own community your neighborhood your condo your who you meet in the grocery store even um for things that you might not think to look for but have to recognize that mm -hmm. this is when your immediate community mm -hmm. is important to be just having more open eyes towards Right. Yeah, and I like that too because I think that's like starting small too, rather than saying like we have to ch like you know solve all the world problems, which yeah. can just be overwhelming in a time where we're already overwhelmed. Yeah. And so, and yeah, and then and I know for me too, even just like with my own friends, it's been t like time where I needed to extend a bit more support um, because and and they to me in a lot of ways. So I think yeah, starting close to home is a probably a really good thing. Just the places where you already know that people are vulnerable, yeah. whether it's like people you know who struggle with mental illness or whatever, just um, yeah, broken family situations too. Be yeah. a little more aware of those things. 
Um, I also, so I haven't, I've been having to go to work every day, mm -hmm. and I work with some vulnerable people a lot more often, or just the clientele that come in are generally, um, need that extra hand-holding and help, mm -hmm. and so, um, for myself, it was just being vocal that at work with other coworkers that this person is in here because they need help, because they need that extra help, and for us to just push online services on them mm -hmm. is to do a disservice to mm -hmm. them when, you know, they've already braved coming out mm -hmm. in a pandemic to come here and get help, mm -hmm. and so, you know, they're here, you help them. Mm -hmm. like. Um, you know, and so we were like on the front lines or whatever, and there was lots of anxiety, and so it was also just being that calm mm -hmm. presence of, okay, you know, the, these are the protections that we can put up mm -hmm. to make it so that, you know, we don't infect each other, or, you know, the people who come in don't infect one, one another, you know, and so like, mm -hmm. but it's just being calm and collected, and, mm -hmm. and people are like, how come we're so calm? <laughs> You know, and mm -hmm. so those are like perfect points to share the gospel or um, your beliefs or just being something that's counter mm -hmm. whatever negative is going on. Yeah, that's a really helpful point. And, and most people are not, well, not most people, but a lot of people are not working or are working from home still or not working where they mm -hmm. have like that direct contact with the public and especially vulnerable population where it could be more dangerous. Um, but I think, yeah, if you are, then that's like huge to be not you know not just like worried about <laughs> yourself but take 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 precautions but yeah. then also um yeah caring for the people who come so that's, that's mm -hmm. yeah. i think the greatest effect you can have is in the circle that you're already in instead mm -hmm. of like you know going out and pushing on something else like the people that you're closest to will can see and it's a really great testimony when you're, you know, not just maybe within a community of other Christians, but the rest of your friends or close circle are not Christians and can see something different mm -hmm. about who you are, what you're doing, and then you can witness on why mm -hmm. that is, like why you live your life the way that you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we do have a chance to really like create a difference in this mm -hmm. this time. I think um, that yeah, to have that bigger perspective that allows us to actually reach out in ways that are that do help people and don't just look up for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to compare the church or contrast maybe both the ch the church as an institution and a gathered body as opposed mm -hmm. to the church as a scattered people. Yeah. Um, because that question is different for both and as church leadership I've been really wrestling with this love-hate relationship with the, with technology yeah. like love how much we've been able to access each other online and mm -hmm. access worship services and music and all that stuff at, as a gathered body um, but also hate how that's really not sufficient mm -hmm. um, particularly like as individuals like we could put a church service onto a TV screen, mm -hmm. but it really falls short in, in terms of relationships with individuals and looking out for each other and serving each other. Mm -hmm. So it's been a bit of a question and a, uh, maybe it's done some good and maybe it's done some harm in that um, we can get, it's easier to stay home 
and just be on the screen. But I think a lot of us, after all this time of what, I don't know, six, nine months now of being on screens, are done with it. And mm -hmm. it really is falling short. And it's, you need people. And, mm -hmm. and it can be the church as individuals, but it does have to be, I think, as relational people, mm -hmm. as people that are getting out there, not just closing ourselves in. Yeah. But it's a real question, too, of respecting like as an institution, we have to respect the government and respect people right. and not gather in large groups and, and wear masks and do whatever we can to mm -hmm. not cause a problem. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, we know people are hurting and need yeah, to gather that's and hard. need to get together. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think the church is really caught in a strange place mm -hmm. too. We don't want people to get used to being just home alone mm -hmm. on, on their own, mm -hmm. uh, even though it feels easier. Um, but then mm -hmm. calling people mm -hmm. to gather right now, it, I mean, large churches in town, like the largest churches in town are not gathering yet. Right. Um, and so it's a real question of like, when do we start to gather again? How long mm -hmm. will this go? Is this healthy? Is this mm -hmm. going to damage the church long term? Is it a sifting of like people mm -hmm. who weren't really into the church aren't going to mm -hmm. come back? Yeah. Or people who, you know, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of questions there around just the church life as individuals and the institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is. Were you going to say something? On, on the positive side, though, this is the first time I've come to Labrie for a while wearing pants. <laughs> Wait, I never pants. noticed you weren't wearing pants. <laughs> I won't type that down. Quickly. <laughs> people can see. People can see the whole. And also, there's now. a British guy here. Pants is not the right word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I really feel that too, Linnea. I think mm -hmm. I think most of us feel that like how important being embodied is mm -hmm. for the church, um, and I think that for all of us in society, um, yeah, we feel the insufficiency of being online. Like I, I, I think it's because it, like both it's you know I'm kind of a technophobe, but I like I've been amazed at how much technology can do and the amazing things that have happened, and at the same time like so done. So I, I feel like I feel like again we're gonna see both like people who are like oh yeah I would so much rather stay at home and not have to get up on a Sunday morning and I'll just like watch a sermon by Tim Keller or whatever, and then other people who are like. No, now I realize the importance of being with other people and, and the church community and there is like a resurgence of like commitment to mm -hmm. being at church and um, being together and caring for each other. So mm -hmm. yeah, of course it's hard to say what it's all going to look like and I think we all feel that sort of like, oh, is anyone going to come back? But then I know that there's also people joining, at least for my church, our services, online services who like having been to our church before or living mm -hmm. in other places or whatever. And so yeah. who knows what that translates into? I don't know. Yeah, the Lord can use it. I know one lady in our church commented like, uh, she plans to stay online because she could, she's a believer and none of her family members are, mm -hmm. but they can't get away from the living room. So she turns it on <laughs> the living room, whereas she could never get them to come on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. So she's finding there's actually way more benefit to it because she turns it on in the morning and it's in the living room now. She's going to church and they're having to come here, whereas they wouldn't come before. So right. you can count some yeah. things as positive, you know, like, okay, well, we miss her because she's not planning on coming back, but she's staying mm -hmm. with her family so they can hear on Sunday morning. So. And I know Brett was oh, also saying, so funny. Brett was saying that about the Alpha Course, too, that he's part of that, um, Nikki Gumbel, the founder, he's a founder, right? Like, yeah. said yeah. that it would never work to have it online, but in fact, it, it, he well, he said it's better than ever because people have been coming in 
who normally wouldn't because mm -hmm. they wouldn't want to set foot in the church. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so there have been some real benefits. Like I would not want to say let's give up meeting together in person because right. embodiment is so important. Mm -hmm. But also, yeah, who knows, like, you know, the Roman Empire did some terrible things, but it also created a network that the gospel spread through. So, yeah. you know, right. we might see, yeah. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe maybe this is the double whammy that we value, both value the, the meeting together, that we really missed it, and yet at the same time we've learned that, so as Nicky Gumbel said, 11 out of his 12 people in his group would not have been on Alpha if they had had it in person. Yeah. So yeah. so there's room for both, there's room for different... Yeah, we have two, two of my friends who are in Thailand who are doing our Alpha here in s s Central Senate. That's very cool. Yeah, because they don't they don't have an English church nearby, and this is a great mm -hmm. opportunity for them. And I, honestly, I like Libri is the last place I thought would have ever been like broadcasting talks or like having you know Zoom things like that. So we are not high on the technology, and we because we really love you know being together and having meals together and being in the same room and having face to face conversations. It's a huge part of what we do, and yet it's been so cool to have people come you know to our zoom lectures that wouldn't otherwise and, and then to have like frank speaking from australia and and so there have been real benefits like i wouldn't want to give up like what libri is in person but um yeah there have been some cool things too so i was going to say along with linnea i i have seen that and also to the earlier quote this discussion about what we can do mm -hmm. i have met people who are more open to me on the streets mm -hmm. when I run into them person that they're much more talkative some people are very like separate but those who do want to talk are even more desperate to talk mm -hmm. and that they're wanting to talk about life mm -hmm. you know uh, oh and it, and it starts out simple I've just been stuck you know I haven't been in I haven't been having work you know just little things that they draw because they know that that's a common experience but that starts a discussion that I haven't had before and we I was also reflecting today that we have really got to know we've been praying to know True. two neighbors mm -hmm. who aren't Christians and it's because of the pandemic that has really opened up the way for us to get to know both of them mm -hmm. and they know what we do they like what we do and the relationship I'm sure will carry on I mean it's it's been a boon to have this pandemic in that way and, and I feel that it's an opportunity for us to uh, I mean it would be great to be able to bring someone to church but also just that middle ground mm -hmm. like this house is a middle ground or any kind of mm -hmm. missional way of trying to create a middle ground for people and the mm -hmm. pandemic has done that mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that we should the church has been trying to prepare people to be able to express what they believe in a winsome way and people have been so hesitant mm -hmm. but I think that this has offered an opportunity for people to now do it you know because mm -hmm. there people are opening the doors you know to to themselves and to their stories mm -hmm. I just think it's an opportunity for us to to be able to speak not just in word like you know sharing the gospel evangelizing but doing it in deed yep. um, listening mm -hmm. talking hanging out I think mm -hmm. That's actually something that Canada is very hard to get into. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so. yeah, and with our neighbors, we didn't really, you know, try to do anything. It was mm -hmm. just because we were all home all the time and we <laughs> saw each other, and you know, like, and and we're going through something similar, you know, like, yeah. 
so and just kind of looking out for each other more I think and, and we received that from them too like my neighbor kept giving me tips on gardening and gave me a slug slinger to get rid of the slugs <laughs> like so, you know so who doesn't so need a slug slinger it's both ways I mean yeah maybe like receiving you know even receiving help from people too because I think it is easy to be like oh yeah we're in the church we're giving things to everybody else but we also have things to receive from people around us too so yeah well unless there's any other hard pressing comments or questions maybe we can end there and um it's really great to have all you in the room and all you on the zoom at this talk and uh yeah you can you can continue to stay and talk but we will stop the official conversation there